0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, Daniel chapter 7 is where we're going to be at. And uh, I want to look at the name Ancient of Days. Uh, It's been kind of on my list of like, hey, that'd be a fun one to do uh, because I remember, you know, in church, in different worship times, uh, this name would come up in some songs and I'm like, Oh, that's such a cool name. And it was interesting. Um, I have probably, I don't know, a dozen books on the names of God that I've been kind of using just to kind of help with some reference stuff and not a single one of them. I I, that's not true. I've had there's one book that has like a paragraph, like a, like a prayer for each name. So there was that one for this one, uh, but there's no details. And I'm like, all right, this one's going to be a little bit harder. Um, so I ended up just studying part of Daniel 7 to kind of flesh out this name. And it, it, it wasn't at all what I thought it was. Uh, in a lot of ways, it was a lot better. And so what I want to do is I want to read Daniel 7, or at least a section of it, and kind of get the context for the name. Uh, the name shows up three times in Scripture, and they're all in this chapter. And so what I want to do, uh, even though this is typically a in times referenced chapter, uh, what I want to actually do is is just read through it. So it begins with this idea in Daniel 7 uh, with the vision of the four beasts. And so if you've done any eschatology studying, typically this is one of those sections that will pop up. So you you have the four beasts that that Daniel has a vision of, and then he moves from that. And By the way, we're not going to get into all that. Okay, (laughs) That's not the focus of the series. But after that vision, he comes into this kind of the secondary vision talking about the ancient of days. And so this is where I want to pick up in verse nine of Daniel chapter seven. So this is what Daniel says. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days was seated. His clothing was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him and thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the great boastful words which the horn was speaking, horn referencing back to the, the beast earlier in the vision. I kept looking until the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given, given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast's, Their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was given to them for an appointed season of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions of my head kept alarming me. I came near to one of those who were standing by and began seeking out from him the exact meaning of all this. So he said it to me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. And I'm going to jump down into verse 21, which is in the middle of the interpretation. He says, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war and, uh, with the saints and overcoming them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the season arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Uh, it's an interesting passage, and it's a little awkward, uh, and, I, and I don't want to come at it from an end times perspective, which is going to maybe be weird because that is the context. I really just want to look at this in light of who God is as the ancient of days. And there's several key things that we find in the passage that illuminate what this means for him to be the ancient of days. So before we even get into that, I want to kind of set the stage and look at what uh, one commentary said about uh, this whole thing. Uh, The Baker Illustrated Bible commentary says this about this name, ancient of days, or sorry, about this vision. Uh, It says, the vision of the human kingdoms gives way to a vision of God as the Ancient of Days, enthroned on high as the great king. Daniel describes God in more detail than any of the prophets before or after him. His clothing is as white as snow, his hair is white like wool. The throne of God is flaming with fire and mobile like a chariot, with wheels ablaze with fire. The Lord is the great judge who is seated to judge the kingdoms of this world. There is no escape from his judgment. A river of fire flows before him. He is the Lord of hosts with thousands upon thousands awaiting his command. The acts of men are recorded in his books. It's interesting as you, as you walk through that passage in Daniel, you have these echoes, if you will, of sections of like Ezekiel. Uh, when you read like Ezekiel and the, the chariot of the cherubim, you have this similar language. Uh, You have echoes of this in the book of Revelation. You have echoes of this in these, you get this idea that Daniel is seeing something that is alluded to in other places in scripture. But it's fascinating to me that God, uh, sorry, Daniel uses the name for God, Ancient of Days. Uh, And here's what one Bible encyclopedia said about the name. It is good Aramaic, uh, and I should have said this, in this part of Daniel, this part is written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. So, this name ancient of days is good aramaic for an old man Isn't that interesting and it corresponds to the hebrew of genesis 24 verse 1. so in genesis 24 verse 1 speaking of abraham it says now abraham was old advanced in age meaning what he's an old guy Isn't that kind of a neat idea and yahweh had blessed abraham in every way So this Aramaic phrase, an ancient of days, bespeaks of this idea of an age, typically meaning ancient in days, meaning you're old. But here's what's interesting. The HarperCollins Bible Dictionary, I think, gives a better description of this idea. They say the ancient one, this uh, is the expression in Aramaic literally meaning advanced in days, but it is not intended to suggest that God ages. Instead, it conveys the qualities of wisdom and vulnerability which one who is advanced in days would possess. In other words, the idea is as you get more white hair or as you lose it, right? The idea is you, get, you have more wisdom. Uh, you have more maturity. Uh, you have more longevity and therefore you have more perspective. So when we're looking at this idea of ancient of days, we're not talking about the fact that, wow, God is really old. Though it is interesting uh, how our culture often describes God as this, you know, like this, old white, uh, this old guy with white hair and a long beard, and like he's, he's aged. And there is a sense that there, that imagery is in the passage, but that's not the focus. The focus is on the fact, not of how long he's been alive, because he's eternal, folks. There, you can't number his days. So when it says that he's ancient of days, it's speaking of the fact that, that, that he is from everlasting to everlasting that he, he is full of wisdom, that, that, that he is above all and overall. It's kind of that idea. He's the patriarch of the society, if you will. He is God overall. And so you get this idea then uh, of this uh, wisdom, this eternal reality. So that being said, I want to walk through a few attributes that as you work through Daniel chapter 7, bespeak or give definition to what it means for God to be the Ancient of Days. So the first one is this. When we say that God is the ancient of days, one of the things we're saying is that he is timeless or that he's eternal. Now, we looked at this idea previously uh, in one of the studies when we were looking at the name El Olam, which means the everlasting God. And it comes from Genesis 21 and the book of Isaiah. And there's this idea as we were looking at El Olam that he is from everlasting to everlasting, that he is the eternal God. And it's neat that this Ancient of Days language is hearkening back to that kind of a concept. Uh, For example, uh, Wearsby says this in terms of the name, in terms of the fact that God God is eternal. He writes, the Ancient of Days is a name for God that emphasizes the fact that he's eternal. That he is the God who has existed from eternity past, has planned all things, and is working out his plan. The description of God must not be taken literally because God doesn't have a body, wear clothes, or grow white hair. These things are symbolic of his nature and character. He's eternal, he's holy, and he is sovereign. So let me just give you a few passages then that bespeak. and we went through some of these in the El Alam session, but I just want to freshly just remind us that God is eternal, that his days are not numbered. He he is everlasting, if you will. So look at this, Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or Psalm 93, verse 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Psalm 102, verse 26 and 27 says, even they will perish, but you will remain. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be changed. But you, O Lord, are the same and your years will not come to an end. Why? He's eternal. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, in that great messianic prophecy, says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called. Think about this. These are the names, these are some names of Jesus. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. And then listen to this one. He is the eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. And I really love that passage because you get all three aspects of the, of the triune God, right? You have a wonderful counselor, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. You have the eternal Father, and yet it's all talking about the Son. Isn't that an interesting thought? That in Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead. That he is the radiance of demonstrated he's the physical expression of the invisible which is just a beautiful thought of all that tied together isaiah 41 verse 4 says this who has worked and done it calling forth the generations from the beginning i yahweh am the first and with the last i am he or isaiah 43 verse 13 even from eternity says the lord i am he and there is none who can deliver out of my hand i act and who can reverse it Or Isaiah 44 verse 6, thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel and his redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, for thus says the one high and lifted up who dwells forever, whose name is holy. Uh, In the book of Job, uh, one of the characters is this guy by the name of Elihu who shows up later on in in the book, and this is what he says about uh, God He says, "Behold, God is exalted, and we do not know Him. The number of His years is unsearchable. In other words, you can't count His days. He is of ancient of days. And so when you look at this idea then that God is the ancient of days, again, it's bespeaking of this idea that God is eternal, that He is timeless. And that's really interesting, especially in the context of Daniel 7, because there's a contrast happening in Daniel 7, which is this idea that he is the Ancient of Days, and his kingdom is timeless, and this is in direct contrast with the temporal kingdoms of the beasts. So if if you're looking at the vision stuff, you have these four beasts, and of course you have the horn thing, and in the midst of all this, God shows up, and literally brings judgment and ends the time of the beasts. Their season is over, and he yet endures forever. And so it's interesting to think that when you look at the world powers, when you look at the temporal kingdoms of this age, whether we're talking in the time of Daniel, whether we're talking in the days in which we live, or whether we're talking about the fulfillment of the end, do you realize that every earthly kingdom will come to an end? but God's kingdom endures forever. Why? He is the Ancient of Days. And it is in sharp contrast then with the reality of what is happening in the world. Uh, let me give you a few quotes from, from some scholars. Uh, oh, here's a summary. Uh, the kingdoms of this world, world are temporal, whereas God's kingdom is eternal and timeless. In other words, it's endless or without count or number. Uh, so Silva and Tenny, two, two commentators, says, say this about this idea of Ancient of Days. They say the Ancient of Days is a peculiar expression, probably chosen to contrast God and his kingdom with temporary limited duration of the four successive kingdoms under the figures of the four wild beasts, which appear earlier in the chapter. The eternal Yahweh of all the universe appropriately defeats them and establishes his own eternal kingdom under the matchless, quote, son of man and his saints who appear in the same scene. And these details are elaborated elsewhere. For example, Ezekiel and Revelation. Uh, Wells and Sumner say this. It could be that we have an implied polemic. And there was a a purposeful uh, contention or a purposeful contrast. Uh, In contrast to the beasts in their limited times, and their gods as well, now comes the one who truly surpasses all time. He is at work in time. But as the Ancient of Days, he has prevailed over days and times. This is an implied contrast to the insolent ruler who would change times. Speaking of the horn and the beasts. For all times are already in the hands of the Ancient of Days. In other words, what they're saying is that there is a limit to what evil can do. That there is a limit to what earthly kingdoms can can perform. And yet, in the midst of the fact that every earthly kingdom will come to an end, God and his kingdom will always remain. Why? Why? He's the Ancient of Days. Uh, Here's a couple passages I think are just beautiful. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he pleases. Isn't it interesting that even earthly kings actually are being directed by God? That, yeah, they, they may be creating wickedness, and yet he will steer for his purpose and plan. Or, or, or look at Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in, in that whole scene. We looked at this the other day with the El Elyon. But the Most High, El Elyon, is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whom he wishes and sets up over it the low, lowliest of men. In other words, do you realize that he will actually bring to end or he will raise up whomever he desires? But there's this idea that all earthly kingdoms are temporal. There is a time limit to every kingdom. There there was a time limit to the Roman Empire. There there, there is a time limit to America that we will not endure forever. Why? Because we're an earthly kingdom. It is only God and God's kingdom that will endure forever. It's timeless. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is a beautiful thought that the ancient days... And his words will never pass away. Why? They're timeless. Or look at what John says in 1 John 2.17. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Meaning what? Hey, all this stuff is, is going to come to an end. But if you find yourself in Christ Jesus, the one who is the ancient of days, then you get to experience the reality of the eternal with him. What's a neat thought. You get to abide in him forever. Uh, The other picture that's seen very, at least very clearly in uh, Daniel chapter seven is this idea that the Ancient of Days is the wise judge. In fact, you see this all throughout this entire section. And let me just reread this just so it's fresh in our mind. But look at verse nine and 10. Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days were seated. His clothing was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire. Its wheels were like a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. And thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Do you realize we're actually in the middle of a a courtroom scene? And here is God as a judge and he is sitting and he's opening up the books. And he is, he's about to judge. I really love what uh, one commentator said. He was breaking this all down and showing the imagery. And I just thought it was a great articulation. So I just want to read this. Uh, But Daniel Atkins says this. Only Daniel calls God the ancient of days. This is God the Father on his eternal and universal throne. As the ancient of days, he is eternal, not old. He is wise, not senile. He is a big God, bigger than even Daniel realized, and bigger than the petty beast kingdoms of this world. And the following descriptions make that crystal clear. So his clothing was, like, was white like snow. It speaks of his holiness, purity, and his righteousness. The hair of his head was like the whitest wool. It speaks of his eterni- eternality, his purity, and his wisdom. He has always existed, and he is wise beyond comparison. His throne was flaming fire. It speaks of purifying and righteous judgment. Its wills were blazing fire. It tells us that there are no no spatial limitations or restrictions on his judgment. He sees everything and he is everywhere present. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. It reinforces the two previous ideas and conveys the righteous fury and wrath of his judgment. <clears throat> Psalm 97, three says, fire goes before him and burns up his foes on every side. And thousands upon thousands served him. ten thousands upon 10,000 stood before him. Sounds like Revelation 511 and is a reference to the angels. So this is what he concludes. Before this awesome and imposing king, court is called into session and the books were opened. The ancient of days does everything by the book. His judgment as always will be fair and equitable. There is no partiality, not a hint of unfairness. This is true for his judgment of everyone, beginning with the beast. Do you realize that our God is a righteous judge? He is a wise, good, fair judge. And when we look at his judgment in the end, we will all go, that's right. That's true. Uh, Psalm 82 I'm taking the very first and the last of the verses. It says, God takes his stand in the congregation of God. He judges in the midst of God's. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who will inherit all the nations. Or Psalm 94, verse 2 and verse 15 says this, Be lifted up, O judge of the earth, for judgment will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. And I thought this was just an interesting thought uh, from Anne Spengler on the name of God being a judge. She says, Justice is ultimately rooted not in a collection of laws or rules, but in the very character and the nature of God. As judge of the whole earth, he is the only one competent to measure the motivations of our hearts. And in the Hebrew scriptures, the word judge is often paralleled to the word king. So when we say that he is king, when we say that he is judge, when we say that he is king of kings, Do we realize that he is making judgment? He is ruling, not based on a list of rules. He's judging on his character. Which, by the way, is even more frightening to me. (laughs) And do you realize that because he is holy, he says you need to be holy. That that we are sharing in his very nature. And so when he brings judgment, do you realize that his judgment is based not on the external actions that that we would see, His judgment is based on the internal motivations and attitudes. And do you realize that when he makes judgment, we will conclude, that's a good judgment. Yep, I'm in the wrong. Yep, you are right. You are perfect, holy, just, and true. And your judgment is true. So, God is the perfect judge. He judges fairly and righteously, and everything is known and seen by him. In other words, nothing is hidden from his sight, which is what Hebrews 4.13 says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. Do you realize that you will be held accountable? Not just for the actions, but the words we speak, And the motivations and the attitudes of our heart. Gulp. And we will conclude that his judgment is righteous. Look at Psalm 50. The first seven verses says this. The mighty one, God, Yahweh, has spoken. And called the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not be silent. Fire devours before him and a storm whirls around him. He calls the heavens above and the earth to render justice to his people. Gather my holy ones, he says. uh, Gather my holy ones to me, those who have cut a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness. Listen to this. For God himself is judge, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Do you realize that he is the judge? And I want to come back to this in just a minute. But there's actually great hope in the fact that he is the judge. But just hold on to that. I want to give you one other thoughts or aspects of this idea of God being the ancient of days. And it's this. In in Daniel chapter 7, you have this scene where the Son of Man shows up. And strangely, what we discover in Scripture is that the Son of Man becomes or is the ancient of days. So in Daniel 7 verse 13, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him. So it's interesting. Jesus used this term, the son of man, as his most, uh, the, the term that he would most reference himself with. In other words, the demons would say, oh, you're the son of God. But it's interesting to me that Jesus always said, I am the son of man. And so here's Daniel. Think about this. He sees the son of man. Who's he speaking of? Jesus. And Jesus, the son, is coming to the ancient of days. But I want you to follow this thought because this is, I think, is a beautiful reality in Scripture. Uh, The Baker Illustrated Bible Dictionary says this. In Daniel's vision, a secondary figure, the heavenly son of man, or literally one like a human being, comes with the clouds of heaven before the ancient of days. And listen to this. The ancient of days gives him authority, glory, sovereignty, a sovereign power, and the worship of all nations and an eternal kingdom. In the gospels, Jesus identifies himself as this heavenly son of man who will come in the clouds of heaven. And there's a bunch of passages there if you want to reference them. So again, it's clear, it's speaking of Jesus. But then listen to the book of Revelation. This is, this is so beautiful to me. In Revelation 1, verses 14 through 16, John is, look, is in the middle of this revelation, this, this vision, and he describes Jesus in the exact same way that Daniel described the Ancient of Days. Meaning what? The Son of Man is the Ancient of Days. So look at this, Revelation 1. And his, Jesus' head, and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it when uh, is when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and having in his right hand seven stars and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in its power. Isn't this interesting that John is describing Jesus? And he goes, "Do you know who he is?" That Son of Man is the Ancient of Days. And so, listen to the Baker Illustrated Bible Dictionary again. It says John sees a heavenly figure in whom is combined the features of the heavenly Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. Its imagery, characterizing the later figure, uh, the white hair and the fiery presence, is now applied to Jesus, indicating that the Son of Man is equal to the Ancient of Days in glory and authority. Isn't that a beautiful thought? that our precious Jesus is the Ancient of Days. He's timeless. He is the wise judge. He's the righteous one. So in light of all of that then, how, how do we respond? Okay, so what, what does it mean practically for us to respond to the fact that God is the Ancient of Days? Let me give you three quick ideas. Uh, number one, God as the Ancient of Days. He's eternal and always the same. So it begs the question Will I trust him? Will I put my faith in him? In other words, he is timeless, uh, he is eternal. And scripture says over and over and over again that this timeless, unchanging God that we have is always the same. And there's, he's the same from yesterday, today, and forever. That he's not capricious, he doesn't just change his mind on a whim, that he is trustworthy, he is faithful. So here's a few passages just to remind us but Psalm 102 verse 27 but you are the same or Malachi 3:6 for I Yahweh do not change James 1:17 reminds us that God with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow or I love Hebrews 13:8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever Do you realize that we have a God who is eternal and timeless and that God does not change Meaning what? He's faithful, he's trustworthy. Which then begs the question, will you actually put your faith in the Ancient of Days? Will you put your trust in the one who says, I am from eternity past to eternity future, I am faithful, will you trust me? And do you realize how essential this is for for our faith, for, 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 for Christianity? Because as Hebrews eleven six reminds us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Which means you have to trust him. You, you need to put your full weight upon him. That, that you need to set your gaze upon him and say, Lord, even if everything around me is in contradiction, I'm going to believe you and your word. So can I ask us? He is the ancient of days. He's eternal and timeless. He doesn't change. So will I trust him? Would you put your faith in him? Uh, Number two, again, he is the righteous judge. So it begs the question or a response, will I repent and surrender my life to him? I mentioned this the other day to the students, but in Ephesians 1.4, I love this passage. Paul says, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Do you realize that even before God spoke creation into existence, the timeless one who's outside of time has chosen you. And what did he choose you for? He chose you to be holy and blameless. He chose you to actually be like him. And it's interesting that phrase before him that you're to be holy and blameless before him, Uh, it gives two ideas in the Greek. One is this idea, it's it's the idea of a judge, where here's God as the judge, which is is our whole scene. Here's a God as a judge, and he's looking down at you, and he's scrutinizing your life to see if you're actually holy and blameless. So you're standing before him, he's the judge, and he's scrutinizing, hey, is, is there any wickedness? Is there any sin? Is there any spot? Is there any wrinkle? Is there any... Is there anything in your life that makes you unholy or unrighteous? And you realize, again, he sees past the exterior and he actually sees your heart. He sees the motives. He sees the thoughts. He sees the attitudes. He sees the the inward stuff. But the other thing that's really beautiful about the Ephesians 1, 4 passage is it gives this idea that, okay, he is a judge and I'm standing before him and he's judging me, and yet it's as I stand before him that I become holy and blameless. And the idea is like I, I've become nose to nose with God himself. That, that I, he's, I'm just like right in the face of God. And it's right in the midst of, of who he is that I find myself who have always been unholy. My, myself who's always been unrighteous. And it's in his presence that I become holy. That, that it is in as I stand nose to nose before him. It's like he makes me Righteous. And again, we, we keep going over this, but, but how do you become holy? You don't get holy by keeping a list of rules. You get holy by embracing the one who is holy. And the, and the only option we have to walk in holiness and righteousness before him is that we got to get tight with him. That, that I can't do this on my own. That My best works, Isaiah says, is but filthy rags. So, so, so how on earth am I going to walk before him in holiness and righteousness? Oh, I got to get tight with him, which goes back to the idea before him. Could I get nose to nose with God? Could, 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 I, could I just get him big in my, in my vision? Could, could I get just so wrapped up in who he is? So, yes, he is the judge. And he's scrutinizing my life to see if there's any unrighteousness in it. And yet it is when I stand before him and and when I approach him and when I get tight with him that he makes me holy. Which is why a few verses later Paul says this in verse 7 through 9 of Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. In other words, the very one who is the judge is the solution. I need him. As Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God, the judge, he demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while I'm shaking my fist in rebellion, the one who should judge that and send me to hell for eternity actually says, I actually want to give you mercy. I actually want to show my hesed to you. I actually want to give you the solution that you desperately need. And if you don't, if you don't accept it, I'm going to have to judge you. So it's not a removal of judgment. Judgment is there if you don't embrace the mercy. But God is a God of mercy who wants you to experience redemption and forgiveness. Isn't that a beautiful thought? So though he is the judge and he is the righteous ruler, and we will all conclude in the end, yes, your judgment was right. Do you realize that he actually doesn't want to bring judgment? He will bring judgment. But what he wants to bring is mercy. What he wants to give you is forgiveness. He wants to actually be your holiness and your righteousness. So how should we respond then? Well, Peter in Acts 3.19, in his sermon, says this, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So if he is the righteous judge and he is my own, only solution well what should my response be return repent receive the mercy and that forgiveness and then number three if he is the ancient of days it it means that he is the wise one which then begs the question for us in terms of a response will i walk in his ways uh, it's interesting <clears throat> when, you, when you look at this idea When you look at the hair and the wool and the aged thing and the ancient of days idea, and it bespeaks of maturity and wisdom. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, in the book of Luke, listen to what Jesus said speaking about Solomon. He says, The queen of Sheba, this queen from the south, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He says, you're without an excuse. That there is this queen who literally traveled a long distance just so she could hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus says, but do you realize there is something in your midst that's even greater? And it's that wisdom itself has shown up. Jesus is the greater Solomon, that he is the wisdom that Solomon was pointing to. Does that make sense? That as you read through the book of Proverbs and you hear, hey, go get wisdom, it is more precious than silver or jewels or rubies. It it, it is the most valuable thing. And we're not just talking intellect. Yes, there's an aspect of that, but we're talking about the one who is wisdom itself. We're talking about the Ancient of Days. Wisdom, the one who is wisdom. So, in light of that, listen to this. James in chapter 1, verse 5 through 6 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing. Do you realize that God doesn't just merely have wisdom to give you? He is the wisdom you need. So if you're lacking wisdom, what do you do? You don't read a book. You go to the source. Go, go to the one who is wisdom. Maybe I should say this. If you're going to read a book, read the book. Right? Like I don't have to open up Confu- Confucius, who is confusing. You know? uh, I, I don't have to re- open up some other, uh, you know, the, the ancient wisdom literature of the Egyptians or the Greeks. That, that's not where wisdom is found. Wisdom is found in the one who is wisdom. And the book of Proverbs is pointing to the fact that we need to pursue wisdom. And I love the fact that in Proverbs, wisdom isn't a thing to obtain. It's a person, which is why in most translations that capitalize the word wisdom. Now, it is a little weird. I get it because in Hebrew, the word wisdom is a feminine word, which is why it says go after her. Her wisdom is like rubies. Right Or her her value is like rubies. So it's a little awkward, but it's talking about Jesus. So even though it's feminine, does that make sense? It's a feminine word in Hebrew, but it's talking about our God, who is the Ancient of Days. He is wisdom itself. So if you're lacking wisdom, go after him. Seek him. So listen to Proverbs 2. Solomon says, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, to make your ear pay, it, pay attention to wisdom, incline your heart to discernment. For if you call out for understanding, give your voice for discernment. If you seek wisdom as silver and search for her as for her hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. For Yahweh gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and discernment. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright, a shield to those who walk in integrity, to guard the path of justice, and he keeps the way of his holy ones. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good track. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will keep you. Discernment will guard you to deliver you from the way of evil. We need to seek after Christ. Uh, look at what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in Yahweh with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Will I walk in that path of wisdom? He's the one that has all wisdom that I need. So will I walk in it? Will I respond to him? Will, will I come in obedience and humility and say, yes, Lord, Whatever you say goes. If your word says it, I'm in. So just to conclude, I want to give you one final passage. Listen to this. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 6, verse 16. Thus says Yahweh, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient path, where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Do you realize that He is the Ancient of Days? He has an ancient path for you to tread, and just as Jesus says, "Hey, come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give your souls rest." Do you realize what He's talking about is, "Will you return to Me? Will you return to the Ancient of Days? Hey, would you let Me carry the burden? Hey, I, I've got a way. Will you walk in it? It's an ancient path." But that's actually good because he's the Ancient of Days. And would you remember that he is the wise one, that he is the righteous judge, that he is eternal and timeless? And we need to respond to that magnificent reality. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, you are good. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are from everlasting to everlasting. And the fact that you are the Ancient of Days, it just showcases your timeless nature, your, your infinite wisdom, and your righteous judgment. And, and Lord, we, we ask that we would respond to that reality. Lord, you don't change, which means you are faithful and trustworthy. We can hold fast to the reality of who you are. Lord, the, f- the fact that you are the Ancient of Days means that you are the judge, and the only hope that I have is to receive and embrace you as the one who is mercy, the one who is holy. So, Lord, I want to I turn, and I want to surrender, and I want to repent, and I want to embrace you afresh. And, Lord, as, as the Ancient of Days, Lord, you are wisdom itself, and you have called me to walk this ancient path So, Lord, I ask for your grace to do so. And may we not justify, may may we we not question, may we walk in obedience and humility, the way of righteousness, that way of holiness. Lord, thank you that you are the ancient of days. We love you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.